everybody, and welcome to Tumble Vision. This is episode 38. If you can believe it, we've been that consistent about something in our lives. Joining you, myself, your host, Heather Gold, Kevin Marks in Silicon Valley, Deb Schultz from the bowels of the Luxor Hotel. I think that's the pyramid. And our special guest this week, special she is, Christina Halverson, content strategist. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. I've always wanted to say that. Oh, you've never said that? No, I never. I always like forget in the moment. I'm always just like, hi. At the end, then you say, thank you. for Thank you. I loved being here. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm ready now. (laughs) So Tumble Vision is a show uh, about tumbling, which is uh, how people catalyze others to action. And it's especially relevant in the networked world we live in. And we talk about it in terms of tech, business, and culture. And uh, we try to first, so the first top of the show, hit some of what's been timely this week in the news, and then we'll go a little bit deeper with our special guest. I will be here for about 70 minutes, and if you want to join us in our chat room and have questions or ideas, please do. We're at TumbleVision.tv. Hey, Russell, Carol Russell, and Zeno, we're going. We're live. So this week, Kevin, what were? Sorry, say again, Heather. Kevin, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> What news stories were on your radar this year, this week? What did you, what was important to you? That's a good question. Um, I, hmm. I haven't, I haven't been, I haven't seen anything in the news that made me go, ooh, this is really exciting. Um, Debs and I went to um, Open Web Food Camp last weekend. Yeah, that, tell us about that. That was, that was pretty interesting. Explain um, what food that camp is and what food means. Okay, so Foo means Friends of O'Reilly. This is um, a thing that Tim O'Reilly organizes every now and then where he invites a bunch of people to camp in the back garden of um, his publishing company in Sebastopol, California, and have a little unconference about whatever's on his mind. And this time it was um, the open web. This is, this is a descendant of previous ones that we've had on the social web and the social graph. Um, and it was... It was maybe 80 people, something like that. Um, that sounds right. Um, sort of camping out in his back garden um, and then organizing little one-hour chats about this, that, and the other. Um, did you guys really camp? I did. I think I think Deb's did the, the camping in a hotel thing. Deb, were you not? You I camped in... You did Jewish camping? No, I camped. Uh, no, I have camped for the record. Um, all, there, there are I, I, there are Jews who camp. I am one of them, but not in um, <laughs> Tim O'Reilly's backyard garden. I hoteled it with another one of our previous guests, Elizabeth Churchill, oh, um, and Kevin and I actually did a session on tumbling. And how was it received? I think it was received well. Actually, we had a couple of tumblers in the room and really what um, for, you know, really folks who sort of organize various communities, both online and offline. So Dale Doherty, who organizes the Make conferences and the Make magazine, um, the DIY crowd and a few other people who have, you know, do different conferences and events. And they were all commenting on the need for better, um, for better tools um, for we sort of position the conferences, what kind of tools do we need to enable tumblers? And they were all saying the same thing, that people don't realize that it's not, um, you know, just a mass group of people. We need, there are lots of hubs and spokes, and so having better tools for all those little hubs and spokes would be better. And so that was really, that was really good. The other interesting thing to me was how much time also other sessions spent on sort of acknowledging Finally, in a way, well, finally, web is pretty young. Social web is pretty young. Um, the, the the concept that we're not all one personality or one persona all across and acknowledging and, that and as that's, we create And that's, that's relevant in terms of actually probably the most relevant that happened for us is that Facebook last week um, announced right. a, a big change, which included, at least in their announcement, uh, a statement from Mark Zuckerberg saying he understands that we have different social contacts, something we're taking task almost weekly on the show. Uh, so they didn't say that, but unfortunately their implementation of their solution was something called Facebook groups, which lets you have private groups of people, but it didn't seem to really help you be different with different people in that many places that easily. So I'm glad they recognized yeah. the problem. I don't think their solution is really 
is one yet that's going to work. Did you did you hear better ideas, Kevin and Deb, at the conference? Um, I think the the yeah I, the Facebook group stuff is interesting in that um, their rationale for it was was definitely worth watching. So what what Mark said was that. Um, they've tried to get people to make lists of their friends to keep track of things, and that, um, you know, very few people bother to do that, to, to construct lists of whom they want to share with. Um, and they tried automatically finding your friends, and that's either um, dubious of dubious value because it gets it wrong, or really, really creepy if it gets it right, because it will pick out the, the sort of stalkerish ex-boyfriend or whatever. Um, and so what they said was they were going from the model they'd use for photographs um, where you can tag anyone in the photograph to create the list of people there and use that as the model for creating groups with the assumption that there will be some people who really like doing that and will therefore construct it for the groups. Um, and there was, there was, yeah, and that would work categorizing the groups for everyone else. That was the, that's the theory behind it. The practice of it is anyone can invite anyone to a group which means you can play all kinds of bizarre pranks on people with it. Yeah, I ended up in a slew of groups without, you know, it's sort of default on, and it, it, it's kind of um, Facebook, you know, they always seem to sort of, they have a lot of complex issues they have to deal with, but there's always that one thing that they, that they miss out on when they're trying to launch a new feature that's usually huge, like defaulting everyone in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and defaulting the email and defaulting the notification on. So people kind of got spammed in that first wave, I think, a lot. I, I did not get spammed by that many, but I think that that's kind of interesting we'll right then and there. So, Christina, what do you think about the assumption that people would behave um, the same way about other people as they would about a photograph or other kind of object? Uh I've just actually, as we're talking, I'm sitting here and I, my mind was wandering because I'm thinking about how my relationship with Facebook has changed over the last six to nine months when sort of the whole privacy thing began. And the more I began sort of connecting with people on Twitter and the more exhausted I became digging and through my privacy, inbox. Sorry, yeah, I started just, and I just try to elucidate for people who don't follow this. Oh, sorry, sorry. The privacy thing, meaning that Facebook has, has done a pretty poor job of respecting people's privacy. They sort of defaulted on opening everybody's information up all the time and then the public gets angry or the geeks do and they, they try to step it back and itch. Okay, so Christina, so this happened, a big a big shift in this happened also on the side of less privacy and mm -hmm. is that what was impetus for changing your relationship with Facebook? No, not necessarily. I think that it was just as that, as that kind of, uh, several people that I know Several colleagues just dropped off of Facebook. They were like, I'm not usually on it anyway. I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to close my account or do the best that they could to close their account. And so they're not even there anymore. Um, but I, so the, the original question, that, I mean, and I'm thinking about it because I'm thinking about how I am sort of watching people's, I mean, I, you, you know, call it live stream or Facebook feed, how I'm watching people's Facebook feeds go by, how I respond differently to stories they're telling, things they're sharing, photos they're sharing versus individual messages that I receive from them versus being able to connect with them on the phone or, or over Skype. And frankly, you know, that my very, very close social circle, it doesn't really matter, right? Like I will, I sort of get the nuances. I connect exactly with what they're saying. I take it in. Uh, and as when I pick up the phone to talk to them, I can continue the conversation as though we were just speaking in person. But I have to say that when I, I mean, isn't, isn't like a high school reunion a good example of how people are relating differently? Because you can be totally like intimate and sharing and exchanging these, you know, details and photos and things on Facebook. But then when you're face to face with that person, what, where does that connection, you know, what does that feel like? Uh, how safe do you feel? How, how trusting well, are you actually? Well, if there's a good Tumblr who wants to uh, like host a party and check in with you and, help make a space that feels better, which seems to me if you're going to have groups that work, you really need people who know how to do that and make an effort to do it and, um, and have, think, a have a reason to do it as well. I think that's it. I think the, the aim they had there was to get the, the, the tumblers within um, the population of Facebook to be the ones who gather their friends up into the groups um, with the assumption that it's giving them the power to do that and, then they're, and they will hopefully do that wisely. 
But obviously, there's a lot of potential for doing um, annoying and silly things with the groups as well. But what they have done is made it such that it's um, once if someone joins you to a group and you leave that group, they can't join you to any more groups. Wow, so, really? Is that true? Yes. Wow. wow. Say that. Say that again, Kevin. I think I think that's I think that's true. It may, or it may be if someone joins you to a group and you leave leave the group, um, it's then harder for them to those people to to add you to an arbitrary group. Um, or at least you can turn that off fairly easily. Or they're probably tracking if someone's spam. Like they probably have some sort of algorithm back there to prevent spammers from inviting everyone to every group. Is that the concept? I wonder. Well, it's a good idea only, in theory. Right. The, the, the thing is, it's you can only invite people you know, but it is transitive. If I've invited you, you can invite other people. So it's it's certainly possible to get scobled by. Well, what it makes sense is that it seems to me, I don't know how much this falls into the kind of you would do, Christina, the content strategy, I guess not, except that it would affect what content you put into a space. Is that Facebook seems to me to be designed to create as many links as they can, and they don't really care about the quality of a link between you and anything. They just want them constantly automatically created. Uh, and because of that, you end up with lots of staircases to nowhere, it seems to me. So I can don't you, know, Heather, can you talk a little bit about in that sort of ongoing link generation? Like, what do you think is, can you just explain a little bit about what's behind that in terms of Facebook's current business model as we understand it? I mean, my personal guess would be, I can't put this on, say it's, you know, proven out. I haven't done the, the right. right research to say it, but my sense is that they are looking at, uh, they're looking a little less algorithmically at people than Google, just, but just a tad, really. <laughs> they want, um, they want to spread as far as possible, kind of cancer-like in that way. Their goal is um, as many things as you can have a relationship to, except I don't think they're very sad about what relationship is. I like, I have a cat, I eat uh, Nestle chocolate, I drive a car, I belong to the soccer team, whatever it is. They want links out of all of those things. Mm -hmm. Because you'll see on Facebook, they will auto-generate. You'll, you'll see things, if you just... If you just for kicks search on Facebook for stuff instead of searching Google or Twitter, you'll find that there's probably a Facebook page that's been created for almost anything. I think their system is set to auto create pages because they're, I don't know, I think they're trying to duplicate the web. They want as many uh, connections as possible because within that there'll be, um, they think they'll increase traffic by default. There'll be more places to go. There'll be, uh, They'll they'll generate uh, you know, activity page view. is the way. I, I I don't think of it so much as page view as activity. They want just lots of activity. And while I was listening to you, it's they want well, you to have your, go ahead. While I was listening to you, I was thinking, and I think yeah, it's probably it's very much sort of like the the goldfish in the. <laughs> it, it sort of looks at the way we inter interact, and and it, this works for some people, and it or it works lightly for some people at different points and times. I like it this way, but for the most part, it's like the goldfish going around the 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 goldfish bowl. I swim around the bowl. Oh look, a photo. Yep. Oh look, well, someone posted they, something. They, oh look, but but increasing these links, they feel like they're making the bowl bigger. You see them on the web having Facebook connect. You see them trying to have right. more and more oh, yeah. pages and groups. Yeah. And what this does is it, it expands them to be bigger and bigger and bigger so that, you know, you could spend your whole life in Facebook instead of the web. I mean, the, Christina, the sound, I mean, I know that click streams, not just the, the display advertising, but mm -hmm. I would imagine they're making a lot of money, first of all, from uh, Zynga, Mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of money from Zynga. And I, I don't know the details, but I've heard from some that there might be a little round robin revenue between Facebook in Zynga, I don't know if it's genuine transactions. Round robin revenue is a is a thing that you do in business deals where it looks like you're both making money. There was a lot of this in the dot com era. When I used to do business deals. The book the book the revenue it looks like there's a deal between oh N two K and AOL, let's say that happened back in the day. Mm -hmm. And it looks like one is worth it because the deals not only increase supposed revenue from the deal, but they increase the valuation of the company. Mm -hmm. Which then gets translated in the marketplace into dollars by taking no retirement tax savings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's been invested. And so uh, it looks like there's money. There's not always money. I think Facebook has money, but it just may be that I know it's true that there's some similar investors in Facebook and Zynga. Um, those are the stuff you see. You see ads, but but the web in general, Julia Angwin did a nice piece in the Wall Street Journal not long about it, not long ago about it. 
at least half the revenue of websites is made from stuff you don't see, which is the cookies coming onto your site, onto your, your laptop that are tracking your your habits and where you're going and reselling mm -hmm. that information. But anonymously in the sense that they don't know your name, your social security number, but they'll know Christina Halverson likes Yeah, Rod nonetheless, they're up likes, in my grill. <laughs> nonetheless, they're what? They're up in my grill. <laughs> they know <laughs> what I'm doing. So, <laughs> it may not know it's specifically your grill, but they're in it. <laughs> right, they're right. Their grill. That's their defense mechanism. Is This is what's paying for free content that most people don't really know that's what's going on. So I would imagine Facebook probably gets more money from brand advertising. That's how the advertising markets work but that there's enormous amounts of money going through this clickstream stuff too. So the more nodes and the more links, they think just by default, they'll, they'll increase. But this, I think of this as a sort of quantity over quality strategy, which a lot of the web is full of. You'll see every celebrity or all kinds of people on, on Twitter who want to say they have 50,000 followers. It's very important to them. Well, and I, this is something I'm hoping we can talk about uh, with regard to Content, uh, content as sort of an object for sale versus content that forges meaningful relationships between people and between uh, uh, customers and brands and so on. Right. Is that that idea that you talked about, about just generating more and more and more links and just having as many sort of connections as possible uh, within Facebook and within social communities, from a content perspective, that is exactly what's happening out in the world of the web. Like, I mean, like this the is content how... farms that are being generated out there? Yes. And I, and I, I think... Can you explain a little simply what a content farm is? Yep, I sure can. Um, it's evil and must be destroyed. Um, a, content, <laughs> a content farm, and, they, and there have been several good sounds, articles. Because it, it sounds lovely. Yep. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a bad name. If we need to destroy them, you need to call them something evil. Like, you know, content form sounds lovely. Content, like content concentration camps. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. But it's, go ahead. Like and the Banksy I just Simpsons wanted to point thing. out that we need to call it something much more evil. Okay. So, so Chris but that's the thing, right? It's, innoc it's innocuous. You think content right. farm? That sounds nice. They're organically growing content. It's not and boring. Yeah. yeah. So what's happening? I mean, and these sit at the in the crossroads of all kinds of different sort of like crises within like the publishing industry and the creative industry, uh, marketing, uh, search, and so on, where these organizations associated content, demand media, um, examiner.com are basically using algorithms within search engines to identify very, very niche terms that are being searched. So for example, uh, making the best three ounce vodka martini with blue cheese stuffed olives. I mean, something that's just like crazy specific. They will take those results and then they will post, you know, hundreds and thousands of, uh, we're looking for an article on this on their site. So writers from around the world can go there, write the article, submit it to them, have it get accepted and be paid like $4. So what's happening is they are, they are, paying very little money for questionably, uh, you know, whether or not this content is quality. I don't come across very much of it. And they insist that there is a longer editorial process. But the idea is this. When you type in anything that's even remotely specific or niche, ehow.com, for example, is going to come up in those first three clicks. And I, it's my opinion that they don't care. And ehow, ehow is a content firm. Yes, it's fueled by one, right? Um, I mean, demand demand media. I think it's demand media is the is yeah. the sort of machine behind it, right? right? And eHow mm -hmm. is the pretty packaging. So the issue is they're cranking out all of this crap content, more and more and more and more of it. And what's happening is that the larger, I mean, Yahoo and AOL are both like, oh. That's a great idea because then we can own search if we're creating our own content to respond to customer searches. And so what's happening is there's just this complete meltdown of any sort of editorial or vetting or even strategic planning process for most of the content that you're going to get online. And that sucks. And what percentage of content on the web now is generated this way? I, I could not tell you. Well, what I can tell you is that the large percentage of content generated online lacks any sort of real editorial oversight. 
but, but we've been celebrating that. That's the thing. It's like yeah. we've been celebrating everyone's ability to publish, and now we've got exactly. Now we've got to celebrate all these robots and 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 um, slaves who are publishing too, which is kind mm-hmm. of sad. Mm-hmm. We've got basically we've got robots um, making content for robots um, to rank highly, so that the people will look at it. It's 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 this sort of weird um, Turing test where the robots are trying to fool the other robots um, to throw stuff at us. But what's what's what? Hey, can you explain, Kevin, what what the Turing test is, so people understand what you mean? So the Turing test is um, the idea that you've got to try and tell the human being from the from the um, computer that's pretending to be human by talking to it online. Um, but we're now in this sort of weird inverted world where all these people are trying really hard to get the robots of Google to show their their stuff up on the web, um, and there's then there's a whole set of people programming other robots that are trying to do the same thing as the people who are writing. So there's this um, sort of weird pollution of the, the human web with these um, battling robots. Right, right. And so, so Christina, this, this point you're bringing up is it happens, we talk about it on the show, because um, this is happening as a choice sort of in lots of places, not just content, but obviously just everywhere. And this idea of turning, you're saying, content to an object, Facebook turning a person or any um, element in your life into objects, maybe social objects, if they're lucky, they get to treat mm-hmm. them, but hope will treat them as social objects. I guess our general contention around tumbling is that things really work best as social objects when there's a person helping it act that way. Yep. And kind of hosting people. And then you can scale out connection for many people, but that sort of feeling that you're wanted, our guest last week, Shlomo Rabinowitz, really did a great job of explaining like his way of activating and engaging people, in his case, running a Burning Man camp or getting large volunteer projects to scale, and we were talking about in terms of politics. But the key emotional element was feeling like you were needed. Feeling like yep. there's a person, you were needed there. And that, that's, that's the emotional piece of how most real communities or human endeavors, whether it's the power of the hearts and minds in the military and how they operate, a political campaign, churches, that feeling that someone needs you there, wants you there is very important. And it's not a thing machine does terribly well. Um, and this object-based stuff I'm going to talk about at BARD. I might be there uh, in a week, giving my new talk with. And I think this is like a fundamental question of our time. I think I think we're, it's time to move out of object relationship. But, of course, it's going to seem easier to automate businesses this way uh, and including web businesses this way. But is there – I mean, do you really think there's a way to arbitrage your way out of this stuff? I mean, do you think the content farms – necessarily are serving anybody are they are they giving them enough value that people are using them or is it just they've gamed google's payment engine so it works for them as a business but is it really getting anybody value at the end of the day to use the page yeah you know i don't know if we have real qualitative uh research on that i think that everything is being driven by analytics 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 what's the click-through rate you know what is their click-through behavior once they do start clicking but you know you get anybody with half a half a sense for uh, quality content. And when I say quality content, I'm talking about relevant content, truthful content, accurate content, content that is going to meet whatever need you had when you clicked on that link in the first place. I, I don't know as though there's any real oversight to that. And frankly, Google can't figure that out right now, right? Like Google cannot really, their algorithms can't get deep enough to, to vet whether or not what they're driving you to is all of those things, right? Um, having said that, I I think that, well, now my mind is wondering because I'm thinking about this, this video that I saw that somebody called out where it was something about like, you know, running your own bar, opening your own bar, and it was created by some dude in Miami who had no, he didn't even own a bar. He just thought that he'd like create the create the video for it. And so it's just my sense that <laughs> while people can be created, I mean, just because people create the content, it's not, it's not that it's automatically being spit out by a machine or some robot or algorithm, but right. just because people are creating the content doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to connect or have real meaning or provide, you know, satisfaction or be relevant to the end user. And the question is whether or not the companies that are facilitating that content creation care. But that's, I mean, that's, that's well, the sort of the, second... the question that they care is the question they even know. How They may not even understand this to, to care, to, to begin to deal with it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, 
I was catching up on the on the chat. I'm not we, very we, good we, at listening we, and reading at the same no. time. But Kevin, Kevin, you can't multitask. You, 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 right, you, you are bubbling to get in your word usage, um, Christina. So you 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 pass them very carefully through your content filter. Mm. Um, I think. Well, yes. Yeah, so what I was saying, robots. I, I, you know, the first generation of spam was was robots that just chop text up and stick it back together again to try and fool the engine. But the sort of more right. insidious Thank second you. generation is what you were describing, where you use the the robots to try and um, tell the sort of cheap humans to to write stuff for you. And they, you know, so you say, go and write me an article on how to open your own bar, and I'll pay you a dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that goes up on the site, and and round it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the you know the, part of the challenge is how do we find the better stuff? And one of the interesting stats I saw this week was that um, we see there's various sites reported they were seeing better click through um, on from things on Twitter than on Google and on Facebook. I think there were a couple two I saw. One was that people were more likely to actually click a link on Twitter than they were on Facebook um, because on Facebook you're used to it, the link sort of putting the Facebook thing up in between and annoying you. And actually, most of the likes on Facebook of external links have now devolved into liking the text of the link rather than the link itself. Mm. Um, yeah. but, the other one, but the other one I saw... Where was, did you get this, this info, Kevin? Um, I, 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 you know, know what? I've been, Kevin, I was, I was looking for that article 10 minutes ago. So I read it too. Quote your source. Um, okay, yeah. there was this, okay. but the other one was the, the one. The one I will source was Eventbrite, um, that was yep. that actually quantified yeah. it as um, if they got a. They, it was the other way around. If they got a click from Facebook, people were much more likely to, to go to the event because they're marketing events, um, as opposed to a, a link from Twitter that was less likely to. Which is um, really, you know, hitting home on on Christina's point that and that it's. You know, quality is, is is context and connection. And connection, you know, one could start arguing is about the the trust and relationship you have with the person who's sending you the link. I mean, I kind of think we've sort of. It, it, here's my question to you guys, and especially to you, Christina: is is this an inevitable kind of? Re- I mean, it's not inevitable because companies are doing it, but is it an inevitable result? Because if if we if social web and social media and all these sites we're creating are these kind of conversations, right? You know, in the real world, people say stupid things all the time so, well, and well, you know, we have to deal one, with it. Can we pause one turn sex? You're saying these are conversations. The ones that work, if you look in our chat room now, yes, it's conversation, but social media, you know, we've just said Facebook it creates tons of links Link. that are not conversation. There's lots of stuff that conversation. I was okay. being a little metaphorical. It's small things that are batted back and forth that in, in a way that if we were standing next to each other, we would say, Hey, look at this picture. Hey, look at this as opposed to, and I'm just sort of posing this. I'm, I don't know if I believe at all what I'm saying as opposed to an article that you read. So mm-hmm. I'm saying we've sort of trans I'm, I'm saying we've, we've transferred the sort of look at this photo. Hey, want to see my kids? Hey, here's a recipe I have in my bag or like my shoes, all the stuff that you would point to if we were in the three dimensional world. And now we've, move that online. So of course we're going to have a lot of this sort of uh, shredded content. Um, is, is that part of sort of the equation we're talking about as well? It's not the same thing as a content farm, but that to me is another part of the equation that we're creating lots of stuff, but it doesn't have a narrative to it. Yeah. You know, as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about the different settings that you're describing, you know, where we're standing next to somebody and say, Hey, look at this picture of my kid or, or, right. you know, we, we are whatever, but Here's my question. If we keep coming back to content as something that's fueling commerce, right? So, or Mm. even, or, uh, so in fact, let's focus on commerce for a minute because we're talking about content farms and they are certainly not pushing people to links, you know, because they want to help them for the good of humankind. Right. Right. But so if you look at commerce, they're saying, they have been saying, we want to be a part of this conversation. We want Uh to create a community around our brand. We want to get users writing content that's going to answer other users' problems, right? So they're throwing all of this expectation into these social media channels and and hoping that those those connections in that community will translate to Well, offering. it's the same thing we were saying about the Facebook link. If there's no there's no assumption there'll be a Tumblr. They think a Tumblr will show up without creating an environment for those people or they're rewarding them without making them important. Yes. 
Exactly. I think that the right, right. Yeah, and I mean that goes back to your point of of an organization of a company making that Tumblr feel needed. Yeah, right. And, and recognized and rewarded, or or given the tools they need to to make it meaningful, to make this thing matter to them, as opposed mm-hmm. to we have a need, which is we want to uh, exit a ten x ROI. Well, I I also think I also think there's a there's you know I I don't pay those content farms. It would be very surprising to me. I'd be you know if they're describing themselves as creating community because they're creating content there, you know, that there is no community there. I'm starting to hate the C word because people are using so it when they don't that, know what they Do we see um, places that have, you know, really well made uh, content and well put together content having higher CPMs and higher revenue streams than other places? Yeah. You know, that's interesting because I, I a case study that is often referred to, and I'll speak about it in the context of social media. I want to talk about content marketing after that, though, because that I think ties into the content farm concept. A case study that's often sort of bandied about by within the content strategist community is uh, Ford and the incredible success that they have had um, with their social media outreach, with empowering these bloggers and making them feel needed and rewarded, uh, sort of transforming their brand and and values through creating really high quality useful relevant content that make that makes people feel like they're part of something right it's not crap it's not being turned out by their agency copywriters they have a full on internal editorial and creative team that mm-hmm. is that is working very closely with their automobiles and all of their support services to you know, and making those connections between what those are offering and what Ford wants to market about those with actual users. And they're getting at those tumblers, right? Right. They're, they're identifying them. Is it by their participation and, you know, their feedback to Ford? I think there's a variety. Is it who shows up to certain events? Um, but they're doing a really great job linking their online content efforts, which is not just social media. It's creating a ton of content and continuing to create content to forward that conversation with their ongoing sort of relationship building in the real world (laughs) offline. So that's, that is sort of, Mm -hmm. and they have, they have definitely seen measurable results in terms of both, you know, everything from just basic click through uh, behavior and sharing and so on to they're really um, translating it into direct sales, which is sort of the Holy grail, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, they've done a great job. And one of the reasons they have is because I agree with you, you know, and someone um, in the chat room had asked earlier, what's the connection between content and the future of t- and, and tumbling and technology? And there it is. Because, uh, you know, a t- you know, you need both the tumbler and the good content married together to make, to, to really engage people. Good story, good narrative, good content, and then someone who connects those pieces to you. And, and I do know a lot about the Ford case and they, they do, they spend a lot of time and attention. I think what would be interesting to hear from you, Christine, is that so all, all of a sudden you have companies everywhere with good intentions who all of a sudden realize they're in the media business or mm-hmm. the publishing business. They're in the yeah. publishing business. Well, and, yep. you know, and, you know, describe sort of how, what happens when that happens. And they think, oh, content's easy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because there's mm-hmm. content farms which are proactively sort of evil and they know what they're doing, Right. They know that they're doing that they're building off of the business models we have for the net today, which is based on links and CPMs. Until we get something better, that's what's here to stay. But there mm-hmm. are those who really want to engage and share, and then they're like, oh, my God, this content stuff is hard, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that I think that you kind of said it, right? Like, I mean, we all kind of woke up 15 years ago, and we were like, oh, I need a website. We need email. We need to basically – uh, we no longer can just send out direct mail whenever we feel like it. We now need to establish a, a viable online presence or else we're going to look incompetent, right? We're not going to look like a real company. Nobody planned for that. Nobody asked for it. And, you know, 15, 20 years later, organizations are still dragging their feet. They still don't acknowledge that the content they're creating in these different silos, whether it is health content, uh, products, uh, you know, product detail content, uh, images, marketing, sales, corporate, investor, whatever, 
that nobody cares that those are being created in silos because when I get there as a user, I want right. to see consistency. I want it to be whole. I want it to, you know, I, I need it to sort of meet my needs and make that connection so that I can move on whatever it was that I came there for. Now, kind of going back to that original question, which I think is very viable, what does content have to do with technology and tumblers? It is what I keep seeing and what I have seen for years is that organizations um, tend to even even uh, even grassroots and political and you know all different kinds of, of organizations, whether or not they're in it for straight commerce, tend to fall tend to worship everything that delivers the content. So the technology that facilitates mm. the connection, uh, the social media platform that they're going to be able to build a Facebook page on, you know. Um, design, visual design, even user experience design, all, you know, high level strategy. These are the things that we fall in love with because these are the things that we can explain and understand. Those are things so, you can get paid to do. Right. Exactly. But creating content. Are you kidding me? It's my life. Yeah. <laughs> well, but look at it. No, but <laughs> it's now put our yourself, lives. But right. right. But now put yourself in an organization uh, that, you know, who has committed Maybe their maybe their agency of record has said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna get you in to these fourteen social media platforms, and we're going to connect you up with these great bloggers, and we're going to, you know, launch this community space. And so they do all this stuff, and the and the people in the organization are like, yes, yes, community context, uh, you know, connection, conversation, and then the AOR leaves, and the company still has to keep creating the content because the the technology alone. Uh, the platform alone, the community alone, it's not going to magically appear. You need a process. You need a strategy. You need a plan, and you need people to do it and to take care of it. And to and host that's the whoever else shows up. The host yeah. Like, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's really amazing. I think one of the big issues around that, which is, you know, is those is one, those silos, and also companies, I've said this ad nauseum to companies, but and I'm sure you have as well, they tend to want to create episodic things. This starts and ends. That's the way we're organized in, in America today for business. Quarterly earnings. They want things to have a start and a middle and an end, and then we can wrap it up in a bow and we can measure it and all this. And very often, ongoing content, content on the web doesn't have an expiration. It has an organic life of its own, and they just don't know how to deal with that. You know, well, there's a right. whole skill set around publishing newspapers and magazines, and there's a process and all that. And think about it, organizations don't usually have that, right? I mean, that, that's one of the things I think they're always up against, and they don't. And and everyone always thinks, oh, I'll write a book. It's easy. You know? Well, and that's <laughs> Kevin, Kevin. Something you said very early on is, you know. Oh, it's the web. We can publish everything. Anybody can publish to it. Yay, we're celebrating. And of course, what that means now is that organizations have been publishing content, like you said, for how many years right. and from how many different, how many different, you know, right. areas of it and with how many different turnovers and with how many different quarterly campaigns. All that stuff right. is still out there. It's still out there. Right. That's a problem, right? And so mm -hmm. what happens then is as that stuff piles up, companies are just like, oh, Wow. Hey, you know what? We need a, I mean, if you're talking specifically about a website, let's just create a, uh, a, a microsite over here because our primary online is crap, crap yeah. right? So, oh yeah. The microsite, they're, they're like content farms for brands. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's sort I mean, of concept for, market gardens, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, you know, oh, all right. That's bad. No, but the, the, the metaphor that we use all the time, though, is like, you know, your your house is, the foundation is cracked. It's falling down around you. And in the meantime, you're like, oh, my God, what color should I paint the front door? You know, they're not right. really, like, willing to sort of begin from the ground up to rebuild. Christina, do you think everyone, every organization has to be in the content creation business or is just the default of any communication, whether it's even your tweets to each other, you're generating content, whether you know it or not kind of thing? Is there a way out of creating content? Do you have to do it if you want to? I think that's a really good question. I, you know, and that, I want to credit Andrew Hazlitt for bringing that up in the chat. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's. Yeah, I mean, what are the social media? What have we been? What have we been saying to each other? You can't not talk to people. You can't not 
go and listen and be a part of, the, of whatever conversations or at least be aware of them so that you can take them into consideration. I, you know, can you get away with not creating content? Sure. I mean, if it depends on what kind of business you are, how, you know, how small, how big, but even like, even my dry cleaners, if I search them on Google and I get my little map because I want to know what the hours are and I get their address and phone number and I click through and I can't find their hours, Mm -hmm. it's going to piss me off, right? Like who are these, who are these people? So even though that's just a little content, you still need to think about what do I need to say? Why do I need to say it? How, what is my presence online going to be? How am I going to participate? I mean, look at, I mean, look at restaurants. Restaurants are a perfect example. Do restaurants, are they publishers? Do they, you know, does a small, lovely restaurant, do they have a marketer? Do they have anyone who's committed to that full time? No, they don't. Do they need to be, you know, uh, could they be tweeting? Could they be on Facebook? Could they, you know, make a website that doesn't start with a huge flash musical dance? You read my mind. Could we just get them to stop using flash? And bury... Yeah, actually, I'm going to give you, I don't know if you, I don't know if you've seen this conversation with a restaurant. I'm going to give you that link real quick because it is awesome. Yeah. Um, so, so Christina, I mean, people are getting by without doing it. I mean, my sense is a lot of people think I have so much to do. I have no time. Now I have emails oh, yeah. sent to me and now you want me to make web content? Like I know lots of companies where you have European companies where I've spoken, we have all these writers and they're in a union and now they're supposed to be uncompensated, but right on the website too. It just, it sounds like more work. And yet then we want to show up and say, oh, content's so important. It's so important yet people who do it for a living are, are losing their living at it more and more. And why, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I've had to transition some of what I do, or I've had to try to get creative about how I try to do it. Um, I think because you have such a proliferation of content and there's lots that, as you, you know, for solely massive amounts of gaming. True. If you, just look at, if you just look at entertainment, gaming so dwarfs film and TV at this point in terms of time and money. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you make a game, which is content creation, there are people paid to do that. But it's a kind of creation that lets you have thousands of experiences from the same, you know, nugget as opposed mm-hmm. to. As opposed to, I need a new nugget every time I'm going to have an experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that makes some of the change. And people are creating their own stuff, and people are reading the stuff everybody else makes online and mm-hmm. other places. So it's, it's you know, there isn't a scarcity of it. There is maybe scarcity of some of it is sort of quality, and there's a certain amount more paid to see Lee and Lost and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um and then everybody who makes content online, it takes time. You have to be present, first of all, to do it, to create. Um, and then I think when you do that, it's tough because it's more vulnerable. I don't know. I'm thinking of art. I mean, I make art. It's a little different when you're making art. It's very inherently vulnerable. When you make anything, um, people want to know, like, how am I getting paid? And the payment comes in other ways often. You know, Merlin Mann does not make a living from having a blog per se. Mm-hmm. He and he'll talk a lot about it all the time. He gets paid to speak. I get paid to speak. I get paid now to teach people how to tumble the way mm-hmm. that I do. And it took me a long time to realize, like, I had to do that. I mean, enjoy doing it, and I think it helps make the world a better place. But that's not always been an obvious kind of approach. And it can be hard to start doing something if you can't see right away uh, how I'm going to make, you know, pay for this time. And if you're a big company making those decisions, everyone wants to, you know, justify stuff as opposed to saying we're going to have a certain amount of space and time to try stuff anyway. Well, I think too, in that, you know, in the context of that conversation, part of what motivates people to create and share content in the first place is because it's stuff that they care about, right? It's stuff that they personally relate to. Um, the challenge with brands is to sort of get themselves enough sort of uh, within those people's how they see themselves, that those people are going to be willing to create and share content that they create. I think that the the challenge, uh, because it is, it is uh, you know, it's so difficult trying to sort of break down the role of content in commerce versus the role of content in our, you know, 
connections and uh, personal lives and uh, causes and, and beliefs and things like that. Because in the latter, you're passionate about it. You care about it. It, it resonates in your core. You, you're driven to create content for it because you want to have that conversation. When we talk about brands who don't have a choice about whether or not they're going to be in that conversation and, and be publishers, how do you, how are you really able to kind of ignite your employees who you have hired or tasked uh, with creating this content to have the same kind of passion that they might have going home and, you know, blogging about, I don't know, whether or not CNN did the media industry justice by covering the Chilean farm uh, minor rescue, you know? And so that I think is a challenge when you talk about writers being out of work or watching their livelihood crumble. Mm -hmm. The question is, are those writers willing to put their skills to work in an environment that uh, that they aren't as passionate about as well. I think they always have. Let's face it. I know lots of writers always worked for magazines that weren't as exciting as their novels. And, um, you know, I've done lots of things where it's not the same thing as like making the next play that I'm working on. But I think if you're working on your craft, it's always better than not. Well, of course. So I, I don't know if that's an entirely new thing other than the fact that I guess you're saying you think it's harder to get, I mean, of course you're getting paid. You want to get paid to write, but, um, it's tougher to go get a job to just write. Well, and when you do, they want to know why you can't just write it for four dollars. That's what I'm saying. It's not right. really I was just about to say what's happened. There's an expectation of free, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, we we've you know, we've sort of created this world, all four of us, because we've all been involved with it for a while. Where, you know, like it or not, um, <laughs> you know, now you can complete. You know, the the big sort of new new media. Um, Long tail media outlets, be it Huffington Post or others, expect writers to write for free mm-hmm. to a certain degree, right? Whether we, you know, whether we well, like it or I not, mean, that's like the, like saying the basics. I mean, it's hard to like you have the money to pay. You know, I, I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I, it, it's to me. Companies do. It was their marketing budget, among other things, and yeah, product development, and all these other things. And as these companies, if they become more integrated, less siloed. They would see that this is part of how they're doing customer service and product creation and marketing, yeah, that's a and they great budget point. for it. But if you that don't I, recognize yeah, it, they do. and by the way, that, yeah, I was just making a point because you said magazine, so I didn't want I, I wanted us to separate out. Sort of, there's actually three types of content in a way. It's the stuff that we write about personally. Here are my shoes. Here's my bag. And there's stuff that you know we were talking about with magazines and the whole journalism industry. And then there's the commerce content. I like that that version, Christina, that you talked about. And I actually have seen a lot of companies trying to do it. I think it's, you know, it's a very new, it's a very, very new skill for them. Companies that used to have newsletters or whatever that used to do more content like marketing are probably better at it than others. But I think it's, um, and, and, you know, when, when I was back at, at a big company, we hired lots of, of, of writers to write stuff for us. I, you know, you could argue that there should be more opportunity, but for for an odd reason, it feels like less. And I think that's because rather than even companies, rather than creating their own content, are saying let's let's use user generated content, right? Oh, the magic bullet! Yes, well, our users will generate content. Yes, I'm surprised. Which you're not going to get without anyway. Which you're not I do think that it's not as easy to just write and have that really affect people as it is to write and also tumble. You know, if you're willing to, as a reporter, involve people in sourcing questions and answers and trying to figure out part of what you're doing, you're going to have a, you're engaging your readers and they're part of what you're doing. And you're doing this kind of tumbling and not just writing a story. Well, and that translates to the commercial environment when we talk about doing any kind of user outreach. You know, because Mm -hmm. you are actually engaging people and you're trying to create this connection or community between the product or service that you're providing and people's actual needs. You know, Um, I want to I want to come back to one other thing. Okay, I just want to keep keep us in mind that we've got about eight minutes left. And so, Christina, want to hit all the points that you're excited to hit. Oh, I'll just say real quickly, uh, Debbie, you're talking about organizations that get that content is complicated and organizations that kind of don't. And I think the difference is whether or not the leadership is really uh, 
really gets that content can be an extraordinarily strategic business asset, right? That that is something that can make or break a relationship with a customer where other businesses are like, ah, there's so much room on the web and anybody can create content. Let's just throw it out there. Um, right. So I think that that's a really, that's a really um, uh, sort of a, the main difference between companies who are going to invest in content strategy and some kind of an editorial infrastructure that is committed to creating content that people actually care about versus companies who are like, oh, let's just subscribe to, you know, WebMD and they can just feed a bunch of articles and then we'll be, have everything for everyone and we'll be the next WebMD, which is like the opposite of tumbling, right? You're not connecting right. anyone. You're not, you're not energetically, you know, making these, these things work together, creating that that charge, you're just dumping it all out there. I'm just like everybody gather around, right? There's, there's one thing I yeah, wish I'd and it's referred to as yeah, and it's often referred to as our distribution strategy. Right? So it works well, both yeah. ways because the guys, well, the guys creating the content are like, oh, let's get it distributed in more places. So they go to the guys that don't have the content, companies that might be creating a new site, a pharmaceutical company that might be creating a new site around you know, a new drug that they have coming out and they want to pull in all the content, you know, on WebMD around that because we can't be bothered to create new content and why should we create new content? Mm-hmm. And and the point they miss is the relevance in the context, right, around them. And it's frustrating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, so uh, Christina, something I wish I'd brought up a lot earlier because um, we don't have a lot of time and I want to talk about marketing uh, content. I don't know if we've hit that in the way that you want to is – um. The reason people need to tumble, and Andrew is pointing out lots of writers don't know how to do that or really be entrepreneurial. Um, mm-hmm. My sense is part of why this is accelerated online is the web is moving to more real time, which is how we're doing the show, the live mm-hmm. chat room. And that is a social space. And when you're in a social space, it's performative space, it's a performance skill, and it's a different skill. And to me, this is really embodied, say, when you see a journalist um, attempt to interview somebody in front of an audience, which is often a painful experience for me, um, especially in an interactive conference where people want to engage the speaker or the, the interviewee and they can't. Um, and they especially can't because the interviewer, the journalist isn't there to do that. And they don't probably know how to do that or they can learn. It's not that hard, but it's just not something they think of. So mm-hmm. do you think of content shifting since your focus is content strategy in the world we're moving into, which is, you know, to me, you know, we're allowed to wait for the web to get to more video, more rich mm-hmm. media, more mm-hmm. real time, more performance skill. Mm-hmm. I, I really love that you talk about, even when you're engaged and because I think a lot of times when we, when people talk about performing, they're talking about putting something on or putting something, you know, in front of who they are or what they believe or want. And that's, unless you're talking about art, um, but I, I like the idea of every time like that I'm performing in this chat room right now, right? It's, it's like in I'm, a moment. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. I think that I, I don't, <laughs> I cannot imagine uh, commercial enterprises really uh, getting to a stage of comfort um, where they are willing to sort of jump into that and, and participate in that as content creators. And there are, a million different reasons why they don't have the infrastructure. Um, you know, real basically legal won't allow it. Uh, product experts and, or product specialists and marketing and tech people haven't been communicating about what the needs are. I think that bringing companies or bringing brand and marketing and commerce into that real time setting, you know, they've done it on, they've done it offline at like events uh, in various, uh, you know, appearances and different kinds of, of media. I just don't know. I think that they would have to have a really dedicated, um, uh, strategy to be and and tightly controlled almost to be able to participate in, uh, with their readers or within a community to that sort of degree. I think it's, it's just going to feel too risky for them. Right. It's a different skill, but the thing is, is if, Imagine our web being 75% video, mm. which I, I can easily imagine. Why you better do it. I mean, what else are you going to do? Mm. How else are you going to come be with you? Well, that's right. But this is the, this is the thing that I keep coming back to. 
we like web 2.0 is done right we're look we're looking forward to whatever's coming back and it's coming barreling down we can we can't almost you know we can't control what people are doing with the web but the thing is these companies are racing to keep up with that i mean god forbid the web is 75% video anytime in the next decade because the companies that we work with and these are big companies are still mm-hmm. battling 1.0 problems and they've been trying to jump ahead to web 2.0 but they still don't have the basic infrastructure let alone a web strategy that has anything to do with their business strategy that that allows them to be functional online and to really serve their audiences so that's kind of what what I keep coming back to and why I tend to be so pragmatic when I talk about content strategy when I talk about content problems when I talk about how people can begin to level set and you know create in a different way and engage people uh, to ensure that things are solving problems because they're they're worrying about the world that you're waiting for Heather do you know because they haven't they, they have not figured out the very, very basics. And I think it's really easy for us uh, who live 24-7 in this world to remember that. I mean, to forget that. No, I mean, I think lots of people have a hard time with it. But aren't we going to see reorganization companies anyway, uh, just based on financial issues we have, you know, in the economy? Are we going to see people being forced to be less siloed? Or is that just uh, my fantasy? Um, well, as someone who works with a lot of those companies also, it depends on the company. Because I've seen a lot of companies really trying hard to break down those silos. But to Christina's point, it's going to take a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let me give you a, you know, a quick example was when, when I was working with P&G and they did a quick, let's spend four hours and bring a whole bunch of folks from all across the company together one evening to raise money for Tide Loads of Hope. And it was both P&G people and a lot of digital like folks like us who kind of get it, right? And it was fascinating to see the culture shop, you know, the two cultures collide because, of course, most of the P&G people said, okay, let's sit down and figure out how we're going to raise money and let's write the campaign and what should we say and what should the messaging be and all that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, all the web folks were just jumping on the web and going, hey, anyone want to help raise money for Loads of Hope? And it was just fascinating to see the two <laughs> collide. And that was three years ago that we did this. So I, I think they're trying, and I, but I think the infrastructure is built in cement, and it's got big walls around it, and it's hard. And I think it's going to take a gen, you know, the next generation to move in. To well, and and also, management. yep, and also we're going to need to change the way that we measure people's performance because people yes. are being measured quarterly. They are being measured on mm-hmm. checking items off of the list. They are being measured on moving stuff around versus necessarily. Thinking strategically about major change. As we come to to the end of wrapping this up, how can you, in a global marketplace where we're going to be able to mechanical turk out all this stuff faster and faster and faster and attempt Mm -hmm. to machinize it all, won't that force people to uh, change if somebody else can always undercut them or what they're doing? Uh, I guess that that I think about... um, this is kind of, I shared a blog post, and this is kind of what I'm talking about. I guess I think about when something becomes a commodity, something that everybody has, where the value just continues to drop. And that, I guess, then how how sort of precious are companies willing to make their content? How much are they willing to invest in it? How different are they going to make it? And And when that, if that shift occurs within a company where they are just like, screw quantity, we want quality. Then yes, they're going to need the change. They're going to need to change the way, not only that they create content, but that they value it and care for it over time, which really backs into organizational design. Yeah. So, coming to the conclusion of this, Kevin, your wrap-up thoughts. It sounds like we're we've got a theme that we're going to keep continuing here, which is you know the quality versus quantity. I, I think there's a way to try to scale with more quality, and it's just to build around human behavior with machines. That's my hope that for things. Your, your thoughts, Kevin? Well, it's it's also that we, we're starting to use to realize that signals from um, people work better than signals from machines for some of these tasks. Um, and that's the sort of move from the search-centric to the, um, 
the conversation centric that we have in 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 Twitter and Facebook and and the like, where actually knowing who's saying it is something that we can weigh up ourselves rather than delegating that task to a giant server farm somewhere to try and guess for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other the other thing that struck me is that you know you were saying that could the web be made of video. Um, Text is enormously efficient, um, and I don't mean in computing terms. I mean in human terms. I can read stuff um, several orders of magnitude faster than than you can write it if if you're if you're writing well, um, and that's 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 never really been true of video. I mean there is a you know production consumption split for video, but it's still you, it, it's hard to read it fast. Whereas if you craft your text well so it conveys meaning. Um, that effort that you put in is then spread out over lots of people reading it very rapidly, and that and that is still an efficient thing and a, and a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. So, so a big vote for for text and and text for quality. Debs, what's your uh, what are your thoughts in your in your final wrap up this week? I, again, I, I a big vote for both because I think you know different people communicate better with video than they do with the written word. I think one requires more input on the front end and one on the back end, on the viewer versus the other side. And, you know, I just, um, you know, Christina got me thinking about how the skills and the kind of content and the way that we create content on the social web um, is very different than even on the static web. So if, if you know, it, we need to think about, I mean, I'm remembering back to when people first started blogging, how different it was. And I think that's going to evolve even more. There'll be lots of different forms of um, shorthand and writing and communication. And it, it, jury's out on whether it'll be good or bad. Server farms will always be, server farm content farms will always be bad, though. Humans have to be in the middle of it, for sure. Well, we won't have as much stuff, I guess, but maybe we'll have as much relevant stuff. And Christina, it's been just a pleasure to have you here. Do you have any anything, parting thoughts or need like, to let um, everyone know about? Anything coming up? I think you guys are smart. (laughs) So it's a great conversation. It's just nice to be able to sort of talk about the larger issues with regard to how these shifts in the industry with regard to creating content and measuring its performance and what we're doing for people versus what we're doing to game the machines. It's just really lovely to be able to engage in, in the conversation coming at it from, from that angle versus, oh, my God, this gigantic company has major content problems. Where do we even start? So thank you for that opportunity. Um, I've got a couple conferences coming up. I'm going to be in Phoenix at uh, the Bolo conference next week. This is a small oh. advertising agency conference, which I'm sort of looking forward to. It'll be a different crowd. Um, Bolo? I'm used to, yeah. I'm Where's used to, that? It's what does that in, stand for? I, it means something. Now, see, you're gonna <laughs> put, it means speak to me in Hindi. But. No, do Bolo 2010, and that'll come up. Um, there's some interesting uh, people speaking. Kevin, you uh, killed me. And where Kevin's like, oh, it means something in Hindi. Great. Bolo ties. That was <laughs> 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 everything. Yes, Andrew. Where it's is it? It's a polo tie convention. It's in Phoenix. Um, yeah, and then what else? I'm going to be at an event apart in San Diego. Mm, oh, cool. Yeah, a lot of the folks that I talk to are, are user experience geeks, and that has been I'd a like lot to talk with them, too. I'm hoping to bring some, some maliciousness to, to Zeldman's world someday. Oh, good stuff. I'll put I'm in trying. The- we talked to him. He's like, I don't know if it's, like, practical. I'm like, it's practical. Yeah, we need. Yeah, I agree. We need right. to get. We need. We need to get in front of some user experience folks for sure. I've been mm-hmm. some, it, it really, it really is because I think creating spaces for people is different than graphically designing a, a, a static page. They're just a, the social space is a different animal. Well, we had we've had Elizabeth on before to talk about that. Elizabeth Jones. Yes, I so recommend should, anybody who's listening to the show. I mean, we have a lot of great shows, but go back. It's Pretty early, first eight shows, I think. Elizabeth Churchill, she's a senior researcher at Yahoo, super brilliant person, and really worth uh, listening to. And also sounds like like she's in charge of everything in a James Bond movie. She sounds awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yes, it was. It was the the two Brits. The gang up on the Brits show. It was the gang up on the Brits show. And um, and if anyone who's listening is in New York next week, I'll be at the Pivot Conference talking to those same marketing media people about how they have to think of the human side. Oh, and you're, I want to come at, to that conference. You're oh, at the, well, 
And Deb, you're at Blog World right now. And, uh, I'm, at, I'm at Blog World Expo right now. It'll be fascinating because for someone who's been in blogging for a while, this is actually the first time I've made it to the conference. And I, and this 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 uh, conversation we've been having about content, I'm going to, you know, sort of observe the next two days around that because it's a world of all these new bloggers learning new blogging tricks as well as big companies Okay. It, it'll, it'll be interesting. I'll, I'll report back next week, I promise. I am, and part of my promise to keep the show tighter, we're going to close. We'll have post-show as always, which if you show up live to hang out with us when we do the show, 5 o'clock West Coast time, PST, 8 o'clock EST, Thursday nights, then you'll be able to have all the pre- and post-show and hang out with us and the amazing people who, this is the smartest uh, room. I can't wait to leave the tools for not to be chat, like text. Uh, Sarah Dopp has been here, which has been really lovely, and uh, um, all kinds of new folks. Terrell Russell and um, Dave F. has lots of smart insights. So uh, come meet some folks and, and meet us sort of live, and eventually we'll have some live events and TumbleCon at some point in the next year. Put a nice real-world experience together. Christina, super fun to talk with you. Oh, and hopefully we'll get to do it, um, do it again. Really Anytime. I'm delighted to be part of the Tumblers now. It's great. Thank you. You are. You're official. One day we'll have something to send everybody who's been here. I'm not sure what. Letter Gosh. jacket. We have a cool new logo design, by the way, guys. I think we have it. Letter jackets? Yes. On. Letter jackets, yes. right? Let, letter jackets would be cool. We could be the gang of tea. Mm-hmm. It's got a, it looks pretty cool. It's um. It's an iteration of of. Cans, tin cans connected with thread. That yeah, wait till cool. you see it. It'll be cool. We'll get that up, and we'll get a new website up. We'll so be real. That is another week of Tumblevision episode 33. Thanks once again to everyone, and we'll be back again next week with Dave Gray, I believe. And we're out. Peace out, everyone. Thanks to Andrew Hazlitt so much for checking in. Best wishes. Rob Blatt and his recovering technologies and hard drives. <laughs>